Welcome to Offshoot, the Fident Capital podcast with host Kevin Choquette. Offshoot is a curiosity-driven conversation that features a wide range of real estate and business professionals. In each episode, we unpack the knowledge, vantage point, and domain expertise of our guests. Then we move beyond the facts and figures and dive into the personal habits and mindset which allow them to be high performers in their respective field. This podcast's objective is simple supporting entrepreneurs, fostering relationships, and uncovering meaningful conversations that positively impact business. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 12 of Offshoot with Christopher Thornburg from Beacon Economics. Dr. Thornburg is an uncommon economist. He's as much at home with philosophy as the nuts and bolts of economics and forecasting. As the founder of Beacon Economics, Chris is not only one of the few, like Hank Paulson, who called the collapse of the housing market, but also one of the few economists who can call it like it is and share beliefs rooted in facts rather than opinion. Chris is no-nonsense delivery, deep knowledge base, and genuine good nature come through in this wide-ranging, fast-paced conversation. I just stopped speaking with him and already wish I could go back and drill down on a few of the topics by simply asking why a couple more times. Listen in as Chris explores big wisdoms, they are worth learning and relearning, government spending, Every dollar of income lost in the COVID downturn was met with $2.60 of government spending. A 2005 repeat, the current economic picture looks a lot like 05. There's simply too much capital in the system. The story, the political narrative, is taking over the utility of data and the insight it can provide. It's important to nail the facts before you guide policy and even behaviors. You need to get the plot first. Inflation. It's not going to be 8% going forward. It'll be higher. Looking at unit money supply, which is M2 divided by nominal G- GDP alone, will point to that. 20% more inflation may be needed to balance things out. Crypto. It's a generational Ponzi scheme. Government. What is its appropriate role? Class divide. How bad it isn't right now in the United States of America. Uncertainty, its value in a world of social media-induced isolation, business partners, good ones and their benefits, and history, know it. What's happened now has been happening many times in the last five to 600 years. I hope you enjoy the pod. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the conversation with my guest, Dr. Christopher Thornburg. Christopher is the founder of Beacon Economics, which he started in 2006. Under his leadership, the firm has become one of the most respected research organizations in California, serving both public and private sector clients across the United States. Originally from upstate New York, Chris holds a PhD in business economics from the Anderson School at UCLA and a BS in business administration from the State University of New York at Buffalo. Typically, I don't spend a lot of time listening to economists. I might align well with Harry Truman, who had famously asked for a one-armed economist who could speak with conviction, rather than outlining the conflict between one item and, on the other hand, its counter. Christopher's different. He's got conviction, and he's not sure about share. Sharing, excuse me, he's not shy about sharing his perspective and the basis for his conclusions. 
He's also got an uncanny purchase on the nuances of what might be seen as the dark arts of economic forecasting. I've heard him speak several times and I always leave the room feeling that I've been given a healthy orientation or reorientation to economic reality. And while I do think that underwriting unique real estate transactions, each on their own merit, is a great way to get through uncertain times, I'm always appreciative of the view from above that someone like Christopher can provide. Chris, I'm very excited to speak with you. and Welcome to Offshoot. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, look, I know you've got a lot of opportunity to share your expertise in formal presentations, and I think that knowledge is undoubtedly going to come through here. But you're also an entrepreneur and a remarkable thinker who I've heard offer a lot of no-nonce insights to the data, insight that I would say is quite uneconomist, if you will. Uh, how did a guy like you get into economics, and what led you to start uh, Beacon Economics? Um, interesting question. Um, I guess going back in time, of course, this all started when I decided to pursue a, a PhD, um, which was odd. I actually uh, am uh, the second person in my entire extended family to go to college and the first one to go on for a PhD. Everybody thought I was some sort of weird creature who <laughs> they didn't know why I just didn't go out and get a job, you know. Um, but for me, I, I always found um, the logic, um, the way of looking at the world, the way of, of thinking about how the world around us operates. I just found that so intriguing and ended up really pursuing it uh, again, right, right through a PhD program. Now, it's interesting because because I was as attracted as I was uh, first time seeing it when I got into academia itself. I would I actually kind of got disenchanted with it. Um, I've always thought that that the big wisdoms are are worth learning and and relearning and and reapplying. Uh, but the world of academia is is more about just trying to tear everybody else down, um, rather than shall we say really educating people as to understanding the world around them. I, I think in a lot of ways academia has become adrift. Um, from the needs, if you will, of, of the economy. Uh, and so when I uh, realized I wasn't going to go through the typical tenure track regime, I ended up back at UCLA working for the UCLA forecast. And, and that's really where I started uh, cutting my teeth, if you will, on this almost application of economic understanding of economic theory and, and data analytics um, really being applied to what I would call the day-to-day -day questions that everybody needs to be thinking about. And so from there, what, what sort of brought you to fly your own flag and, and you know, strike on the entrepreneurial venture? Oh. Well, I, I think that's a standard, um, standard story that a lot of folks, uh, uh, as I think as my, my former boss once put it, I think quite politely, uh, well, Chris, Chris, shall we say, had a little bit too much of an entrepreneurial streak for UCLA. Uh, in other words, I was kind of out there doing my own thing. And eventually, uh, the school and I just realized that that uh, what I was doing, how I was going about doing it wasn't going to work within their auspices. Uh, so at that point in time, we all decided maybe it's uh, best for Chris to, shall we say, uh, move on to his own endeavors. So I, I left UCLA, started Beacon Economics in, in 2006, and, and along the way, uh, again, using um, the, sort of the tools uh, that I had learned and, and the way I, I've learned to think about the world, um, I made a, an interesting call 
Uh, of course, I was one of the few folks out there when I left UCLA and was free to have my own opinions. I said, gee, I, I think real estate's in a bubble and I think it's going to uh, burst and I think it's going to cause a major recession. Uh, of course, uh, as we know now, that prediction uh, came quite true two years later. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, a lot of things change rapidly, both for the economy and, and for my company. Yeah, it's a, it's a somewhat tricky time to launch a business, right, as the entire global economy melts down. <laughs> well, our running joke for a while was uh, <clears throat> the good news is we called the recession. The bad news is we called the recession. <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> but with that in mind, you know, we, we ended up working with a number of groups, quite successfully navigated um, their way through the Great Recession. One of my clients, I was on the the board of Polson and Company um, in New York City. Uh, he was a famous hedge fund who bet against real estate at the right time and then a bent for the economy at even a better time and, and ended up making um, some, well, insane money, uh, to yes. say the least. Yes. Um, so, you know, on that, on that end, uh, I definitely, shall we say, came out of uh, that situation better than I went into it from a financial standpoint. Uh, but for all the wrong reasons, the, uh, really due to what I would call the, the chaos of Wall Street and the snake oil investments, they sold a lot of people in that period of time. Yeah. And what's happening in your business now? What are you guys seeing? You know, what's I, your, your typical client profile? What are your challenges? What's, what's the business look like for you? Well, it's interesting because the business has completely morphed. At, at the beginning, it was um, really what I would call just a, a kind of a personality, a forecast business. Um, you know, I called it right, uh, was getting a lot of press time, was flying around the country doing speeches at high end events. Um, but the company itself was only a few people. Uh, we were quite small and it was really wrapped around um, my work and, and the work wrapped around the, the Great Recession. But the funny thing about that kind of business is this. Um, when there's big calls to make and you're making those big calls, the, the press loves you. Um, but. Uh, if you don't make those big calls, uh, they ignore you. Right. And of course, about 2011, I felt there weren't any big calls um, left to be made. To be honest with you, from 2011 to 2019, most of my forecasts really boiled down to is there's not much to forecast. Things are fine. Um, it's pretty straightforward where the economy is and where it's going. And because of that, the that sort of business being on the news, jetting around the country faded away. Uh, and I started building what I would call a, a, a real business. Now, I have 20 people. We continue to expand. We do policy work, impact analysis, uh, development work. I still do the speeches here and there, but now I have uh, more what I would call kind of local clients and we work a lot on, on local trends. Um, so it's, it's more of a business business uh, and less of, again, uh, one of these kind of brand personality things. And uh, on, so the, on the development work, is that uh, large public works kind of infrastructure development? Or do you also work with uh, local or regional or even national builder, developer, uh, personalities, real estate, you know, actors? Well, you, you always dance with the real estate crew. You, ha you have to. I mean, there's nothing more cyclical than real estate. And, and so uh, a forecaster, particularly someone who's gotten it right, uh, obviously continues to interact with those folks. But when I say the word development, I'm really talking more about economic development efforts uh, that might happen within 
some of your local governments or indeed within the context of some of these PPPs, public partnerships, um, such as, well, Benner, the LEDC, for example, is a, is a classic case of a public-private partnership, which does a lot of economic development work. So we, we will work with these folks and, and help them better understand what's happening in their economy, better understand where the economy's heading, and how to, I think, uh, create local economic strategies that uh, will better increase the, the light average lifestyle, life whatever, uh, of, uh, of the local residents, right? How, how, how do we make the economy work better for them? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I mean, like I said at the outset here, I've heard you speak a lot and to a certain extent, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm speaking with the Oracle. I have a lot of respect for, uh, your knowledge and the way that you go about, um, conveying it to people in a way that has impact. Um, you know, it, it kind of feels like I could just throw a few of these kind of macro softballs around and, and uh, let you take a swing at them. <laughs> I, I know you're more than capable, but, you know, we just touched on the real estate cycle. And I think that would Im impact, you know, the sort of public private partnerships and advising local governments and all of that. But, you know, if we talk about the cycle and where we are in it, I, I think we got $5 trillion from Congress. We got $4 trillion <laughs> from the Fed. Uh, money supply. I just ran some calcs. I think 29% of the money in circulation as measured by M2 has been created during COVID. And whether you're talking kind of aggregate cash at banks and investors, there's 21 trillion. And I think you talk about it as, you know, excess, like off of trend line cash. So maybe it's yeah. nine or nine or 10 trillion, but clearly there's a lot of money around. And I wonder what your, your view of that well, big that's, picture stuff. That's exactly right. So, you know, like I said, for I made the big call back then, and then there were not a lot of big calls to make. And and then suddenly what, what popped in was, of course, the, the COVID situation. And the world has become very interesting again, very, very quickly. Um, in fact, in a lot of ways, I almost feel like I've been transported uh, to 2005 but this wow. time, as opposed to subprime cash driving uh, the economy, it's just massive amounts of, of uh, really stimulus um, provided by the Federal Reserve, provided by the federal government for, for no good reason. Now, again, we, we live suddenly yet again in profound times, which means I do have to start if you will, talking loudly the way I, I did back then. And <laughs> it all it all boils down to to what happened. Look, when, when I think about the economy in, in general, right, I, I always like to think of um, what I would call uh, simple metrics for a complex world. I, th I think there are, are good ways of thinking about the world and some 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 basic numbers. And for me, you know, having studied these numbers, followed these trends over a long period of time, thinking about how the economy operates, um, I have been able to, if you will, we have a pretty good sense of, of where things are going. And, and it's funny because, you know, go back to that period of time from 2011 to 2019. In that period of time, how much stock market volatility did we see? How many recessions have been predicted by economists that never happened? We heard every time you turned around these dismal stories and in 20 in the beginning of 2019 80 percent of economists who contributed to the wall street journal um 
said we were going to have a recession by the end of 2021. Now, not one of these folks was talking about COVID. COVID didn't exist as far as we do in mm -hmm. January of, of 2019. They were talking about Chinese trade wars that really didn't mean much or a real estate meltdown that really wasn't happening. And and for me, it was it was it was so perplexing this this constant need to be negative relative to at least what I was seeing in the trend. But then I picked up a book last year. It's interesting not to digress from the conversation about the the current economy. I will you know bring us back there in a second if you if you bear with me. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but uh, you know this this book Schiller wrote was called Narrative Economics, and he said. Economists, for the most part, like to think that people are rational. Ergo, the data drives the story. Know the data, you can ignore the story. But the reality is, as Schiller puts it, is, is, is the story is everything, and the story has a life of its own. The idea of narrative economics says that you have to pay attention to what people are saying to themselves, because that will in turn drive policy, which will in turn drive the economy. So we went through this period of time where, for the most part, again, as I noted, I didn't have much to say except for really there's not much to say and I can't believe everybody's freaking out. This, the pandemic suddenly shows up and it took that narrative, that story, that kind of silliness of an economy in decline when it absolutely wasn't, and it turned into one of the most insane panics I've ever seen. I mean, it's almost comical in the rearview mirror to see what a lot of what one would have thought otherwise pretty bright economists were saying about the economy. Um, Zandi, who famously called the meltdown, told us that 30% of homeowners are going to stop paying their mortgage because of COVID. We heard from every group that 40 million people could end up being evicted. We had, like the UCLA forecast claimed it was a depression-like crisis. Well, look, there's no doubt that what happened during the pandemic was tragic. It, it absolutely was. It was a tragic natural disaster. But if you study the history of natural disasters, you very quickly learn they don't have long-run economic consequences. Mm -hmm. In fact, when, when the pandemic fades away, economies have typically come roaring back. When, and so there was no reason to think that it, as, as tragic as the situation was, that we were going to drop into some sort of long run, you know, uh, business cycle the way we were in post Great Recession. But that wasn't heard in these populous times. The story overwhelmed logic. My industry was overwhelmed by the narrative. Um, and... The net result was one of the most preposterous uses of monetary and fiscal policy one could have imagined. We're talking $11 trillion, uh, a little less than two-thirds of that, and direct fiscal stimulus. And let me give you a context here, a little bit of a number. For, for every dollar of lost income suffered by Americans over the course of the pandemic, the federal government gave us back $2.60. Wow. $2.60 to one replacement rate. Keynes never talked about that. Keynes is spinning in his grave. What are you doing? <laughs> you know, and then, of course, on the other side of it, uh, the Federal Reserve, which is supposed to be technocrats, it is now run by politely politicians, 
economic hacks who don't seem to understand their job. Jerome Powell put out $4 trillion of quantitative easing. To put this in context, Janet Yellen and Ben Bernanke did $3.5 trillion in quantitative easing during one of the most severe financial crises this nation has ever faced. Jerome Powell did $4 trillion of quantitative easing when there was no financial crisis. Yeah. It wasn't even, there wasn't even a mild financial crisis, Kevin. There was no financial crisis. And he did $4 trillion of quantitative easing. It is a punchline, except for the fact that it's very, very real. And, and right now we live in a time, you can't look around this economy and not see one sign that doesn't point to an overheating economy. Unemployment is continuing to fall. It's way below 4%. Inflation is 8%. Asset prices are going through the roof. The current account deficit is widening dramatically. If I was Mr. Scott, I'd be screaming at Kirk. Yeah, shit, the engines can't take anymore, Captain. You gotta <laughs> back off. Yeah. And in so DC, they continue to wring their hands and talk about a recovery that, by the way, ended nine months ago. Mm -hmm. What is wrong with this country? It's crazy. Yeah. So where do where do we go from here? I mean, this uh, there are lots of branches on the tree that we're talking about right now. Um, <laughs> meaning, meaning there are lots of ways to look at what's going on. We could talk about velocity of money. Oh, we can talk I, about I, inflation. I, I, Kevin, let me let me let me sum it up. Okay, let me sum it up the best I can. I don't have a damn clue. <laughs> That's so good to hear. Well, That's pretty much it, exactly right? where I mean, I've these, been. These, these guys who sit around and say, oh, I predict the future. Oh, I know there's going to be a crisis in 2036. You don't know nothing, okay? Look, a forecaster can see two years relatively clearly, right? Um, typically. Look, in 2014, it was about as obvious as it could be. The forecast was... 2.4% plus or minus a percent. That's it. It was completely boring. Right now, the range of potential outcomes are absolutely enormous. And one of the big reasons they're enormous is because we are, we have policy people who don't seem to understand what is happening. The Federal Reserve raised rates a quarter point. <laughs> You, you could not have done something more dramatically useless than that, okay? You have to extract trillions of dollars from the economy through quantitative tightening before you're going to slow down this out-of-control train, chief. You, you, this little bitty move you're doing is, is not going to do anything. Hmm. Um. The, the federal government, I, I, I would argue the structural deficit is easy $1.2, $1.3 trillion right now. I, I don't know. It'll be interesting when the, when the fourth quarter numbers are finally released tomorrow for the federal government budget. But at $1.4 trillion, we're talking a structural GDP of, what, 6% of, of the economy? That's not sustainable. 8% inflation, that's not slowing down. The Federal Reserve's inflation forecast is absolutely preposterous. I, I know enough about the technical details of forecasting 
to know that no one in the Federal Reserve is running an honest-to-God forecast and providing those numbers. They are filling it in on a spreadsheet according to what Jerome Powell tells them to put in there. It is a complete pipe dream. So I don't know. When, when do the mom markets wake up? When does the Federal Reserve acknowledge what it's done? When, do, when does the federal deficit become unsustainable? These are trillion-dollar questions, and if I truly knew the answer, I'd have a yacht bigger than Putin's. Right. Well, let's do this one. We'll take them one at a time. Inflation for a long time, um, and it wasn't just the Fed. It, it was a bunch of other, uh, I would say, well-educated and thoughtful people uh, were arguing for transitory inflation. This was a, a supply chain, you know, supply side induced pr uh, price appreciation. And once we clear that up, we should revert back to normal. <laughs> Okay. okay. First of all, there's, there's two things you need for inflation, right? One, you need money. In other words, you need your Tinder. And two, you need a surge in demand. In other words, you need your spark. Well, look, $4 trillion in quantitative easing in the midst of a strong financial market is nothing but a pure, it just goes straight to M2. M2 grew at a level we've never seen. During the course of the Great Recession and afterwards, Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen did $3.5 trillion in quantitative easing, largely to offset the deflationary effects of the collapse in, in wealth that was going on. There's been no collapse in, in wealth this time, ergo, it's straight into the money supply. Mm -hmm. And if you did, again, simple metrics for a complex world, if you looked at what, what's called the unit money supply, which is nothing more complex than the M2 divided by nominal GDP, that thing was has been incredibly steady for decades. And it now is about 20% above normal. That says that even after an 8% inflation year, we got oh, probably 20% more inflation to get, pri get prices back in line with the amount of money out there. 20%. That's what, not exaggerating. Sorry, That's explain what, that one again to me. It's what's the numerator denominator? It's, right, right, money it's very simple. It's M two. Yeah. That's the broad money supply divided yep. by nominal GDP. If you okay. will, it is the it number is, of dollars in the system so awesome. relative to the amount of transactions. The it's nominal the simple fractions. Dollars to assets. No, 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 no. GDP is a flow, not a stock. Fair, no fair. Good correction. That Good is correction. just a flow. But it is numerator denominator, and if you've got but, that much sitting on the top, the but I like the flow stock. I mean, it, it, you 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 are you know enough economics to be dangerous, sir. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's probably <laughs> no. That's true. good. That's good. That's good. So no, it is a flow, and so it's the amount of money, the stock of money relative to flow of economic transactions, and again, that is so crazy out of whack. Like I mean, like like you've never seen before, and, and what's interesting is. You know, go back to the idea of, 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 of narratives and norms and, and social standards. What's interesting about the unit money supply is it is it rose pretty steadily from, um, oh, about, I want to say about 1995 through 2019. It was on an upward trajectory. It seemed as if the economy was tolerating more and more money without changes in prices. But then again, most most folks would 
would tell you that prices don't float as freely as your typical micro model would have you believe. People have concepts of, of fairness and there's benchmarking and it, it can actually, I mean, inflation can be constrained just by inflation expectations. Now, mm -hmm. what this all says is, is, let's say for the sake of argument that that friction was preventing that increase in money supply up to the pandemic from causing inflation. Well, boom, now Jerome Powell has, has just kicked down the door, broken the dam, lubed the wheels, whatever you want to say, released the brakes. Boom. Now I can say 30% inflation before we get back to normal. Now, again, th these, are, these are scary numbers. These are the kind of numbers that could cause a lot of problems in our economy. And of course, the only way to deal with it is to vulgarize things. And now for anybody under the age of, of, of 50, that and probably doesn't mean vulgarize, what the, what the heck is that? Well, we had a big inflationary period of time in the 70s. And uh, it, it really culminated in the late 70s when inflation was in double digits and uh, it more or less pushed Jimmy Carter out of office. It was a central issue in the economy. And, and what's interesting is, is we voted Jimmy Carter out. But if I'm to understand, I believe he was a guy, I could be wrong on this, but I believe he was a guy who appointed Volcker. And Volcker came in and he said, OK, we're going to we're going to purge this economy of inflation. And he did so only, uh, of course, at the cost of what was at that point in time, back-to-back uh, -back recessions, uh, 1980, 1981. The second one was the worst downturn at that point in time. In the post-World War II period, unemployment got into double digits um, before, of course, inflation was conquered and, and the U.S. got into the roaring 80s. So, you know, could you see a, a phenomenon like that over the next few years where a big increase in inflation until, of course, the Federal Reserve finally has to come in and stop it? And uh, lo and behold, boom, uh, shoves us right into a downturn. So could that happen over the next few years? Absolutely. Will it? Again, trillion dollar question. Mm-hmm. Uh, boy, there's a lot there. So... so interest rates uh i get your point the quarter point movement is you know like it's sort of laughable right the 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 the, the mosh pit is fully rolling and these guys come in and think they're going to stop it with with one guy or something but um there if you start talking about the implications of interest rate movements and talk about real estate prices um we're, you know, I understand it from like 1975 to 1980, we had interest rates go from 7.5 to 15%, which presumably was at the hands of Volcker. Oh, no, 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 no. It was the hands of the bond market. Vol Vol Volcker and anybody who runs the Federal Reserve has control over the short end of the stick, which will eventually drive the high, long end of the stick to where it needs to be, where, where it will ultimately end up. Gotcha. Um, but look, the thing about inflation is very clear. If you don't get rid of inflation, I mean, interest rates are going up because of inflation. Right. And Volcker had to conquer inflation to eventually get them to come back down again. So it's a mistake to think that, um, you know, somehow or other interest rates won't go up if you don't do anything. Eventually, the bond market will respond. At some point in time, someone's going to say, hey, you know, I'm not really cool getting a two and a half percent return on a government bond 
uh, when the inflation rate's 12%. Uh, I, I don't think I'm going to accept that. And again, that that becomes very painful very quickly for the economy. Um, look, high, high interest rates don't hurt the economy. It's going from low to high interest rates. That's the painful part, right? So, um, yeah. So there's going to be some of some reconciliation that's going to have to take place over the next few years. Uh, again, our Federal Reserve seems tragically lost, uh, despite what I would call the again the, the 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 just absolute shocking number of data points that suggest they have overdone it. Um, and uh, everybody well, should be kind of on high alert to see how this thing shakes. Well, out. where where do you move if you're sitting? I mean, I, I think I really understood and heard what you say. If you're sitting at Uh, 2.4% 10-year treasury, and God only knows how many trillions of dollars are parked on that asset. And you go, well, inflation's 12%. What asset can they move over to to just pick up the 12% inflation? Well, (laughs) interestingly enough, this time, real estate may actually be a safe haven, right? Right. Um, You know, you go back to the last downturn, of course, that was the center of everything because the hit that time really started from real estate because of all the crazy debt and all the crazy pricing and all the crazy, you know, uh, subprime borrowers. And it was just an absolute train wreck. And while it fell apart, of course, um, there was a, a lot of, of, of damage to the housing market specifically. I mean, we've never seen home prices collapse the way they did. In fact, they almost assuredly overshot uh, on the way down. It was it was such a bloodbath. Well, this time around, um, I, I I would argue that I think housing is getting overpriced. I, I don't yeah. I don't think there's any doubt about it. But with that in mind, the fundamentals are amazing. It's a pure cash driven market right now. It's amazing. You know, we've seen. Over uh, the last year, what, a 20% increase in prices in the United States? Uh, the outstanding amount of mortgage debt only went up about 8%. Hmm. And by the way, that 8% is the highest pace of mortgage accumulation in a decade. Hmm. It's a remarkably low debt market out there right now. There's not a lot of debt out there. Most of the debt that is out there is is high quality stuff, high FICO score borrowers, Um people are buying homes that can, they can afford given their incomes and those interest rates they've had. So this, the, you know, <laughs> the real Mac people were of course making money hand over fist in from 2008 to 2012. I'm afraid they're going to find themselves, uh, shall we say a little bit high and dry through this particular cycle. Which folks were making it in the real 2000? Mac, the, uh, sorry, the, the, the re, the REO folks the uh, the the foreclosures oh the yeah yeah. Foreclosures. yeah yeah the B two R and and REO to rental and all of that well just do well, look and that's all relatively new I'm talking about the the folks who look there's always been this REO market there are sure. bankers and real estate agents and investors who specialize in dealing with foreclosed pro- properties it's a it's a part of the business that a necessary part of the business right it just is but you know, that necessary part of the business went ballistic in that last meltdown. And, uh, you know, a lot of those folks made it made a ton of money. Um, it's not going to happen this time. Right. I got you. The credit quality is too good. The, the oh, LTV yeah, yeah. is too too low. Mm-hmm. But exactly. let's, look, let's go back. So let's say that, that 
your hypothesis proves true, the place to go in order to have an inflation protected asset is into real estate. And and let's stipulate well, that. Let's say real assets in general, right? Okay, sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, in, in but, as much as it's a real asset. Like, I, I'm, I'm not sure I, I consider the stock market to be a real asset anymore, even yeah. though... You Even though functionally it's supposed to be tied to real investment through corporate ownership, who the hell knows anymore, right? There's but, a lot of distortion. Oh yeah, absolutely. But so then let's let, I'll I'll try to distill it. Let's just go multifamily as one of the many real assets you could buy, well, and let's let's well, argue look today. Look at rents going through the roof right now across this nation. Right, right. right. So mean, rents in San Diego County are up thirteen percent year over year. Oh yeah, and, you want to and asking rents, asking rents, asking okay. rents. Right, that's right, asking rents, and the new leases are far more valuable than any of the renewals. Um, yeah, but let's say west of the five, San Diego County, three cap; east of the five, San Diego County, three and a half cap. That's real. That's like across the board today. But if yeah. I go into that thinking that interest rates have to move, let's just say that ten years today, it's worth saying we're at March twenty ninth, twenty twenty two. Uh, around 2.4%. I don't know what, what movement we had today. And maybe this inflation is up eight and probably understated. Maybe it's going to go up another 20, maybe even 30%. And let's say that rates have to at some point hit six or 7%. So what happens to cap rates? If I bought something at a three and a half cap and I was borrowing, I mean, rates have moved quite dramatically very recently, but let's just say I borrowed it. 3.4% to buy my three and a half cap. Maybe I only took 50% LTV. Next guy in has to go borrow at 6%. Well, what happens to the- so, so, Yeah, I mean, listen, listen, a cap rate is the same thing as asking me what's going to happen to the nominal price, right? Yes, exactly. And, and so if you looked at, if you looked at what happened in the uh, 1970s, as an example, and it's again, it's a long time ago. The data wasn't as good; harder, harder to get a vision. But from what I'm, I'm seeing, is um, nominal property prices we just didn't grow, right? They went flat. The market didn't melt down. Um, prices just kind of went flat, and you saw a very few transactions. Now rents actually kept up. Rents did okay. Um, uh, if you go back and, and think about, you know, rents didn't keep up exactly with inflation, but they kept up a little bit, right? I mean, they weren't, they weren't that far behind. So you saw what, what the rents people paying were growing almost at the pace of inflation. The value of your property isn't going up. So that all suggests the cap rates were indeed, uh, you know, heading, heading up, right? They were decompressing. You weren't getting as much money relative to your flows. Okay. Well, listen. If, if if you've been if you've been in the market for the last four years, functionally speaking, you've gotten enough appreciation for the next fourteen. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So you probably don't have a lot to complain about. You know. Right. What I mean? Right. So yeah. you're, the moral of the story there is you need to be buying for cash flow and not for asset price appreciation. Oh, absolutely. That's that's just a given. Yeah, well, I always, mean, come always. on, come on. And by the way, there's a whole bunch of people in the cryptocurrency world who are about to learn that lesson at some point in time in the hard way. <laughs> hey, no, but, to but that crypto doesn't pay you. you scheme. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's a Ponzi scheme. By the way, did I mention it's a Ponzi scheme? It's one of the most obvious Ponzi schemes in the history of the planet. 
apparently every generation has to learn it the hard way. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. So, so look, you've called bubbles in the past. What I hear you saying right now is, uh, and I know this is very sound bit ish, which would be more appropriate for perhaps Fox news than, uh, having a conversation, but you know, what I hear you saying is there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of different paths we can go down and, you know, who really knows? Do you, do you well, think there's an asset well, price bubble or? Absolutely. Or... Absolutely. absolutely. It's not, it's not, there's no question there's an asset price bubble. Absolutely there is, right? Absolutely. So the, the, the only question is, is how far, how big does it get? See, we're on that part of the bubble, right? The bubble is now, is now inflating. Right. And, and the question is, is how big will, how big until this bubble starts deflating? Right. Trillion dollar question. I don't know. Right. Well, so where do you, where, as an astute economist, and I'm certain an investor at some levels, where do you invest today? I'm going long on real estate. Yeah. And I'm getting as much uh, fixed interest rate debt as I can possibly pick up. Yeah, that's that's a great place to be in this kind of market. Uh, a thirty-year fixed-rate mortgage is a godsend in a market like this. I couldn't agree more. We just locked a thirty-five-year mortgage for a client of ours yesterday. Unfortunately, the rates were considerably higher than they were a year ago when we started the process because it was a HUD loan. Um, but three point six five percent for thirty-five years. I think on year 13, 14, I, I, or 15. I, that's still a pretty damn good rate. <laughs> Probably going to look pretty good, yeah. 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 yeah, well, I won't tell you what I refinanced for in uh, July of 2020. Yeah, it would have been significantly less. Yeah. Um, look, I've heard in some of your other presentations, um, we're, I'm just going to sort of pivot a little bit here, uh, that I don't know if you coined this term or – if it's uh, something that's more broadly used, I've only heard you say it, um, miserableism. And yeah. the, the idea that there's a bit of a... Uh, a well, dare, yeah, I mean, dare I say epidemic, right, of negativity and it's downward spiral. But, but, but what's funny yeah. is, is I used to use that as a great way of trying to express my frustration with the broader story that seems so out of line with the data. And then Robert Schiller showed up and goes, oh, yeah, I wrote this book. And, and oh, OK, that's what I'm talking about. Miserableism is a conversation was it was as I'm talking about the social narrative, the one that that drove this insane degree of of, ex, you know, stimulus. Um, we still kind of exist in that world. In fact, that's that's what's it's it's miserableism. It's that story, that narrative that is driving the populism in both of the parties. I mean, you look at Trump and Bernie Sanders, you know, they're actually not that different from each other. For all their vitriol, they actually don't sound that different. They are both just, they're tried and true populists who, who just want to tell everybody that their lives are terrible and it's everybody else's fault. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you, what's the, I mean, I think I heard you say at some point, uh, you know, the news isn't really a source of information that may or may not have come from you, but <laughs> well, uh, where do you go for your information to, and what's the anecdote for, for that kind first of, of all, that's, sentiment? Uh, two things here. Um, and, and, and it, I would argue that, that the problem with news is the headlines, right? 
there's a lot of really good stuff in the newspapers. You got to get away from the headlines. The headlines are there to titillate, to startle, to shock, to get you to pay attention. Um, but if you find and look, there's a lot of there's a lot of good reporters out there who really do try to get past that story. You know, who try to give you the to, to 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 try to cut down to the truth, and so you just have to really, I think, be a careful reader, and and think about where this person's coming from, and are they discussing the data, and and who's trying to prove what to who. There's a lot of good stuff out there. I, I love the Economist; it's still a great newspaper. Like I said, you know, a lot of the big publications, the Washington Post has got some good stuff in it nowadays, right? And, and uh, yeah, okay. There's always a bias. There's always a, a, a bent. Um, but you know, if you stay away from the editorial pages, it's it's usually um, it's usually pretty obvious what's going on, and you should be able to to, to find the information. And mm, the general public, if you will, uh, yeah. uh, how, how do they? Well, let's go into uh, what were the two social media documentary movies that came out the the, <laughs> creep, the creepy line and and uh what was the yeah. other one that just came out you know, if true. we if we go into that world where yeah. everybody's in their own echo chamber you know mm -hmm. how, how does the how does the general public not get a wash in all of this uh narrative and just sort of lose head from tails you know it's funny i just saw i know this is not a weird segue but i'm a, I'm a big david bowie fan and, and someone just sent me a clip he was being interviewed and talking about the internet and it was creepy. He, he got it immediately in a way I never did. He, what he said was, is that everybody's going to fall into their own little bubble, their own little world. And the narrative's going to go crazy. And he's right. Um, at, you know, there's always been conspiracy theories. There's always been these weird ebbs and flows, but for the most part, because those, those manias were constrained just by the sheer limits of, of, of communication and information, it could never be all that widespread. Although here and there dramatically, you think about things like the South Sea bubble and you can see how they change world history. Um, the internet is creating a situation by which all these little groups find all their little crazy places. And it, 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 it basically, it, 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 it pushes us towards our own worst instincts where we look for confirmation, not information, where we think we have the answers and we're only looking for those answers to be agreed with, um, rather than just starting with the basic idea that maybe I don't know everything. And if I'm open-minded and, and listen to some different opinions, um, you know, and, and to really focus, if you will, on things that are somewhat objective, that maybe I could kind of pierce through the bubble a little bit. But that unfortunately starts with the idea that, that we all have to be um, a little bit uncertain. And we live in a world where that you're not supposed to be uncertain, right? We live in a world where we're supposed to respect people's emotions. You have to respect my opinion, how <laughs> I feel. It's how I feel. And you have to respect that. No, I don't. Because what you're feeling is complete lunacy. <laughs> you know? Um, 
so it is it is a funny place where where you're just somehow or other you're not allowed to tell people no you're wrong um because somehow or other might hurt their feelings and so we enable this nonsense even further and and yeah, a lot of crazy, dangerous stuff goes on. Uh, just look at what happened January sixth, and we know how just how crazy it can get. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Look, in hearing you speak, it's the kind of thing that you just said that I always appreciated because I don't have. A, let me say it a different way. I've had a lot of different people on this show and I ask them about macroeconomics and what they think of the monetary supply. And the most pragmatic of amongst them says, I don't really care. It's not that they turn a blind eye to it, but they just choose to focus on the micro, the specific transaction that is in front of them and be done with all of the noise that comes from, if, if you will, the sector where you kind of operate. What you're, The kinds of things you're saying now I just don't hear come from the economists, if you will. I, well, we the the narrative reflects our our sort of inner subjective reality, but there are objective economic truths, and and one of them is if you increase the money supply, prices will eventually adjust accordingly. <laughs> right. And and so you're right; people aren't paying attention. They're not that interested. They're not that concerned. They will be soon enough. Um, it will force itself into their lives one way or the another. I, I truly believe we, we are on the edge of a, of a, of a really um, potentially dangerous cycle. Um, populism and economic turmoil are dangerous bedfellows. And um, it just seems like we're heading that direction quickly. Uh, and I don't see a lot of willingness to confront that in Washington, D.C. Perfect segue to two things that what I wanted to bring up. Um, look, COVID, I have seen make asset holders even more wealthy across the board. Um, and I think there's a huge portion of this country that doesn't candidly care about interest rates because they don't own anything that's related to interest rates. And, you know, I just spent a weekend down in Mexico and go drive around there and see like, okay, here's the ultra, ultra rich and all these other homes that aren't even complete in their construction. Not a knock against Mexico, but it concerns me that like we're really moving towards a class divide. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. Come on. Really? No. Yeah, I don't, yeah well, really. Look, two-thirds of American families own their own homes. Okay? Two-thirds. Okay. All right? Um, we're not Mexico. We're not heading in that direction. And, you know, here's another thing. One of the things that happened during the pandemic is three million people retired. The nations did with labor shortages, the income gains for those in the lowest quartile of earnings, um, are the fastest they've been in 30 years and significantly faster than everybody else in, in the labor pool right now. There we go. So income inequality is falling. Americans have opportunities like never before. You know, so many of the technological things that have changed our life so pro profoundly in the last 20 years are, don't even come up in the GDP numbers. And they all suggest that quality of life 
has never been better for basically everybody in the United States, um, even the poor. You know, I remember I used to tell people this story. I would say, like, you know, the, the, the iPhone, right, the modern sort of smartphone was invented in, I think, 2006 or seven. That was when the first iPhone came out, right? Now, think of that. 90% of Amer- 90% plus of Americans have smartphones. Nobody doesn't have a smartphone. And on that smartphone is an infinite amount of entertainment that didn't exist here 20 years ago. An infinite amount of convenience. I mean, who would have thought of a world where a, where a single mom who, you know, 30% of single moms live in poverty. 20 years ago, a single mom didn't have a smartphone. She didn't have the ability to go online and order really well-priced baby food and diapers from Mr. Bezos and company or, or Walmart and have it delivered to their her doorstep. This idea that, that somehow or other we're suffering is, is just nonsensical. Um, mm. And yet, to your point, I mean, you went there, right? I mean... Well, but let, like zoom out to the conversation of rents. And, you know, I'm in the business of, of yeah. pitching capital on pro forma rents for a lot of okay, development let me, let me start, projects. Start right there. Let me ask you a basic question, okay? In the last 10 years, what has happened to the median rent to income ratio? in the United States? Hmm. I can gather that my answer is wrong. Which is uh, what? What's your answer? My answer would be that the the rents have gone up disproportionate to income. Rent is now <laughs> large. They've rent. gone down over the last decade. Okay? That's interesting. Now let's come to California. Uh-huh. What's happened to incredibly expensive California to median rent to income ratios over the last decade? Huh. Median rent to median income. Uh, right. Okay. I'm just going to go right to the answer, Kevin. It's falling. It's falling. Yeah. It's falling. Okay. Now, here we go. You ready? What major city in California has the lowest rent to income ratio in California? (laughs) This will be fun. San Francisco. Absolutely. Ding, 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 ding. Hey, at least I can get one. (laughs) The most expensive apartment market has the lowest rent to income rent-to-income ratio of the major cities in the state. It's a completely different story than what you hear about in the news. The data's right there for everybody to look at. And by the way, none of this is to say that there aren't families out there who need a helping hand. There always have been, there always will be. And if we're human beings, we should do so. <laughs> Graciously. Yeah. But the idea that that population is growing is incorrect. Yeah. Well, there you go. So that was question one. Question two, what do you view as the role of government? And I never thought that highly of George W. Bush, but I heard him speak once. His answer was the role of government is to create an ecosystem where capital is willing to take a risk, which I thought was perhaps the most intelligent sort of sum- summary of what government might be about yeah but that's for, one, one of his one of his economist speechwriters wrote that for him yeah yeah totally <laughs> what no, what listen, do you think listen, go, go, government is the glue that holds us together let's just be honest about it right government we live in an incredibly sophisticated world um gazillions of markets moving an incredibly incredible speed 
by individuals who for the most part are self-centered and greedy. And yet we all manage to get along pretty damn well because of government. Um, it is the framework by which we interact with each other. They establish the rules that we live under. And whether that government is generated in our democratically operated bureaucratic legal systems, or whether it was done under the Pharaoh King God with the uh, high priests kind of arbitrating the business disputes as they did in ancient Egypt, it's part of living in a complex human society. It's part of it. And, and the idea is, I mean, do I think there should be less government? Sure. I should, I think they should be less interference and I, but in other places, I think they should interfere more. <laughs> but what we're doing here is we're discussing the fine tuning of the system that by definition defines what civilization is. Mm. Yeah. I like it. Well, look, um, Christopher, I know you've got a busy day ahead of you. Uh, I, I would like to transition at least for a moment over to the kind of more personal side. Thank you for everything you're sharing here. It's, it's, uh, as expected, I think we could do this three times longer and go deeper and deeper. Um, as an entrepreneur, as a businessman, as a, a lifelong learner, do, what daily routines might you have that kind of keep you moving forward? That, for me, it's, you know, I try to go through a bunch of stuff to get my head right, hoping I can have a, a win on the day and, and then maybe a, a longer term win. I will be honest with you that my life has been nothing but a, a cloud of chaos from, <laughs> from my earliest memories. Um, I, everybody around me says I'm ADD. I'm bouncing off the walls constantly. Um, I am constantly doing things last minute. Uh, but you know, so I don't, I don't have, I don't have routines I, and I'm, and I revel in that at some level. Yeah. Well, um, look, the correlation but, between but, but entrepreneurs. Here's the, but, but here's what I do do. I, I go out of my way to continue to learn. I don't watch TV. I, I, I have glommed onto audible like nobody's business. And I just, and I've learned, I will find a book I like like narrative economics uh, or uh, Homo Deus uh, by Harari, which is sheer genius. Or uh, I read Diplomacy by Kissinger last year. And I read all these books twice. I listen to them twice. Um, it, because if you're constantly stretching and reading the wisdom of really, really smart people, it constantly alters and adapts your worldview. And that, that learning process is, is what's most important to me. I feel like I'm a smarter person than I was a decade ago, and I want to be smarter yet a decade from now. Um, that is my only one and true goal. Yeah. How, do you have any guess how many books you're able to consume a year? I'm just curious. It's not a quantity thing. I think if you're playing the quantity game, you're missing it. you got to find what I think are really smart books which are hard to find, but they're out there. And then, like I said, you really got to give them a couple shots. Um, 
again, and I, I, I basically, I know that fiction has a value and it's wonderful, but I, I really have devolved largely into nonfiction. And I, again, stretch outside of, of my, my, my realm all the time. I love reading history. As a, you know, as a forecaster, you got to be a historian. And I don't mean a historian of the 20th century. If you think about the cycle we're going into today, this has been repeated time after time in, in, in the, what I would call relatively modern world of the last 500, 600 years, you have to pay attention to, to what happened in the past to truly understand what's going on today. Uh, entrepreneurs, what, what one or several messages might you have for, for that, uh, band of renegades who's willing to go out there uh, on their own fruition or kind of swept out the door to to kind of make their way and hopefully bring something of value to our society uh two things i would say first find a good partner um i had a bad partner and now i have like the best partner ever find someone who's different from you that you respect and they respect you there's nothing better than to have that person there as your sounding board um, it's hard. It's probably harder to find a good partner than it is to find a good spouse. Um, but it's worth the effort. I feel, um, uh, number, number two is, is, is to l learn to, to take a step back. You know, I, I think in my company right now, I was involved maybe a little too much in what I would call content. And I'm realizing particularly nowadays that I need to be more strategic. I got to be really thinking like a boss um, and less like, if you will, one of one of my very smart uh, researchers who's out there kind of getting this stuff over the finish line. You have to let go. And that that, again, I think is can be kind of kind of hard. Um, but, you know, you get some good employees and you learn to trust them. You get a, a good partner and you learn to trust them. And that should allow you to do whatever it was that made you want to do your business in the first place and enjoy that in the end that's all you can ask right enjoy yeah it. agreed and, and if you i mean you've you've offered a bunch of these things already but if you were to take that same sort of mindset and put it towards consumers or dare i say citizens i always feel like the whole idea of consumers is is kind of degrading um anything out there for just you know the average american who lives in this place under our nation of laws and kind of navigates what we're all navigating together. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it, you, you really got to take a step back and, and figure out um, what makes you happy. I know that sounds trite, but we get so wrapped up in the nonsense we see on the internet and, you know, who's wearing what and who's driving what. And, you know, that's a rat race you're never going to win. There's always somebody with a nicer jet plane than you. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and in the end, you know, you're going to you're going to leave with what you came with, which is nothing. Nothing. Right? So, uh, you know, and enjoy the ride and, and stop worrying about the, the accounting. <laughs> Very good. Um... I think I'll, I'll think I'll let you go. I know you're short on time. I appreciate Chris that you took the time to speak with me. Uh, anybody who's gotten this far, uh, you know, my, my team tells me to 
remind you, please go ahead and rate the podcast if you like it. Chris, I'll leave uh, with you any closing remarks. And if you want to provide any contact or your web. Oh, uh, sure, sure. Anything else. No, it's been a pleasure to chat with you. It's been a lot of fun. I, uh, great questions. I, I appreciate it. Uh, Peakandecon.com is is us. Uh, that's our website. Please take a look. We got all sorts of information about who we are, what we do out there. Um, we operate here in Southern California, but we really do work across the West. And every once in a while, I even fly over the Mississippi for stuff. Uh, so yeah, if we can never uh, be of any assistance helping you understand the world just a little bit better. Do, uh, do let us know. Great. Thank you, Christopher. Great to be here.